In this episode of the Personality Psychology Podcast, we talk again about personality change, but this time with a twist. While much of personality change research expects positive events like starting a career or family to contribute to personality maturation, with quite modest evidence so far, I have to say, then today we talk about the possibility that negative events, even trauma, can promote positive trait change. Or can it? I'm René Matos, and I'm joined by Laura Blackie and Aranda Jayavi Cream, whose special issue on post-traumatic personality growth has just been published in the European Journal of Personality. I know that the special issue actually started from an expert meeting funded by the European Association of Personality Psychology that Laura and Aranda chaired, which is why I think it is such a carefully curated set of topics. I have to say, I found this special issue very impressive, and I think it really gives us a perfect opportunity to discuss post-traumatic personality change or lack of it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Rene. Thank you very much for having us on the podcast. We're very excited to talk about this topic with you today. Hi, Randa. Hi, Rene. Yes, likewise. Very excited to talk about post-traumatic growth today. First, what is actually post-traumatic growth? That's a really good question because it's, it's a very broad topic. Historically, it's been defined in the literature as just positive change, referring to changes in relationships, changes in worldviews, and changes in conceptions of the self. But it is argued to be quite a transformative process. So it's supposed to be a sort of shift in your self-concept and your understanding of the world and how you relate to others, such that after going through a traumatic event, you kind of see yourself as a sort of distinctly different person and rebuild your life after that difficult life event. But it has been defined very broadly as positive change and transformative change, which I think echoes some of the challenges that we have when it comes to actually measuring it and measuring it well in studies. So it has a lot to do with narratives that people have about themselves, right? Yeah, there is a narrative component in some of the original models of post-traumatic growth. They very much talk about it from a, a shattered assumptions worldview, taking some of the original literature from post-traumatic stress disorder, such that a traumatic event would really kind of shake you to your core. And as such, you would have to kind of rebuild your narrative, rebuild your understanding of the world. And then you have a sort of transformative kind of experience at the end where you sort of see your, you see yourself as a different person and are a different person. But it was kind of it's originated from clinical psychology. So it hasn't been situated very well um, within personality psychology. So whereas we would see some parallels very much there between narrative psychology and, and, and the approaches they use in the theory, they are, you know, originally post-traumatic theorists were also talking about transformative and real change for some individuals. So in theory, we should see that in other levels of personality and individual differences as well. But the challenge of defining where that change is most likely to happen is, is ongoing and I think will keep us busy for a little while. What's interesting about you know, this question of whether adversity can have can have benefits, so if, if whether there's value to trauma and adversity, is that that question, right, has occupied philosophers, you know, religious thinkers for a very long time, right? You know, some people argue that one of the main functions of religion is to provide people with explanations why they're suffering and adversity and trauma in the world. Um, and it's interesting that given that this question is one that's, you know, occupied thinkers, you know, for millennia, psychologists 
only really got interested in in the last 30 years. So, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, you saw different research groups get interested in this idea that there might be benefits that people perceive through the experience of suffering. So the most widely cited definition of post-traumatic growth, the one that Laura mentioned a little earlier, uh, was provided by Richard Esky and Lawrence Calhoun, who are clinical psychologists at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. But around the same time that they were coming up with this theory of post-traumatic growth, you had researchers like Crystal Park discuss stress-related growth. You had uh, researchers like Stephen Joseph, who's at the University of Nottingham, talk about changes in changes in outlook that people experience in the wake of adversity. And all these articles came out in the early to mid 90s. So it's interesting that despite the fact that this question of whether there is there is value to adversity is something that's been discussed in academia, you know, among thinkers for a really long time, it's only relatively recently entered uh, the psychological discussion. Right. And do I get it right? And this is the very reason that you are interested in post-traumatic growth and you want to study it, that you see this opportunity to take this concept that has been studied elsewhere in clinical psychology and philosophy and religious studies even and position it within personality psychology. Exactly. Especially for two reasons. One is that, you know, given this is a question that's occupied people for a very long time, it's research question that has a very strong intuitive resonance with many people, right? You know, is there something of value I can gain from going through the experience? It says, is there, given there's so much suffering in the world, is there a point to it, right? So this is a question just that naturally, I think, occupies many people's thoughts, right? So I think it's a question that demands, you know, rigorous investigation. Is there evidence for this intuition that many people have? And I think another reason why I think it's important for, for us, for personal researchers more generally to be in, in, interested in this question, is that the question of whether adversity can be transformative is a question of personality change, right? So to the extent to which Jesus believes that somehow adversity or trauma can leave you in a different place than before you experienced it, that is a question of personality change. And Laura and I have argued for many years that it should be studied as such as a result. What do you think, why is post-traumatic growth such an attractive and intuitive concept that draws people and their attention? I think it's quite a comforting idea in a lot of ways, isn't it, from an everyday person perspective, because, you know, there are situations in life, events that happen to us, unfortunate, difficult, traumatic, that we have no control over, or at least feel that, you know, some of them we have no control over. Um, they've just happened to us, whereas post-traumatic growth and the associated changes from that really allows you to sort of redefine and salvage something from that event, learn something and then I, I think reestablish a sense of kind of control and agency that you have in the world. Um, so I think it's a very kind of appealing and intuitive idea um, for that reason. However, I think the flip side of that is that if the research, and we're not at this point yet, but if the research consistently does show that it is an attractive idea, but very few people perhaps experience it, then I think we need to be quite careful with that ideal because it perhaps then sets people up for the expectation that they're going to kind of grow and change and transform and it can kind of create a sort of marginalized experience um, for those that don't who've just gone through an experience and actually have changed negatively and are really struggling you know with the impact of the event or I haven't changed at all. And they think, well, actually, I just, you know, I'm just carrying on. I had a bit, I had a few blips, but I'm I'm all right. You know, is this is this where I should be? So 
I think that's why it's so important that we get this good longitudinal research that Aranda rightly pointed out, personality psychology has the kind of not only the theoretical models for us to use, but also the, the methods that can allow us to study it really systematically. And just to follow up on what Laura said, one thing that's happened, at least in the United States over the last like maybe 10, 15 years, is that this idea of post-traumatic growth has gained a lot of resonance. There are a lot of uh, research articles published in post-traumatic growth. There are a lot of popular media articles that talk about the possible upsides of experience in adversity. Just in the last few months, I've seen at least three articles that look at post-traumatic growth in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. People are interested in this question. I think there are people who believe in this, uh, in this phenomenon, who want to get the word out there. And then you have the public who are also drawn by this question. I think what's interesting about post-traumatic growth is that it's a topic that resonates with a lot of people, with researchers and with the general public. And I think for that reason, because we're human, because we all share you know, similar biases, we're motivated by research that confirms our intuitions or confirms our pre-existing beliefs. And you know, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but one of the challenges with a lot of post-traumatic growth research is that despite the mythological limitations of a lot of this research, people buy into it. And I think it's because it it corresponds to their own pre-existing beliefs. So I think one reason why it's important that we study it is because if we don't study it, as Laura mentioned, there's a likelihood that people are going to continue to believe a relatively simplistic story about how adversity can lead to benefits, can lead to growth. And that might have detrimental outcomes for many people. That really resonates with my experience with talking to the public and media and writing about things. When I Whenever I write something or talk about something that has the word change in it, that immediately draws much more attention from people than when I write about anything else, really. But that really takes us to the question of prior to this special issue and the meeting that you had that led to the special issue, what was actually the empirical evidence for post-traumatic personality change? One reason why Laura and I got interested in this question was that a lot of research in post-traumatic growth doesn't use longitudinal data, right? So in many cases, it assesses people after the fact. And I think in part because of that challenge, right, of having samples where a large enough proportion of people would go through a type of event so that you have the power to ex examine whether they've changed. Most research in post-traumatic growth used retrospective assessments where people were asked after the fact how much you think you've changed. And I will say, right, that I understand that measures that ask people how much you think you've changed because of this event have very strong face validity, right? It's the type of question you would ask a friend or the type of question you can imagine a clinician asking a client, right? So it has very strong face validity. But the problem is that you're asking people to retrospectively assess how much they've changed on any given personality dimension. You know, there have been multiple studies looking at the validity of retrospective assessments. And from a personality perspective, you know, the correlations tend to be around 0.2 to 0.3, which are okay, but if you're using those measures as measures of change, right, that's pretty poor. So one issue is that most research of post-traumatic growth uses retrospective assessments, but also people are asked in these studies, how much do you think you change because of the trauma? And we know that when it comes to the processes that lead to personality change, most people don't have that insight, right? So if you're interested in the story people tell about their lives, fine, you can ask them, okay, what's the story that you tell yourself about a particular event, or about this traumatic event? But if you're interested in this question of 
does adversity or trauma cause changes in people? It doesn't make sense to ask people whether they thought the trauma caused them the change. So one big issue is the assessments for looking at post-traumatic growth don't seem to correspond with the construct itself, right? So we're conceptualizing post-traumatic growth in terms of personality change, but we're measuring it in terms of perceptions of change. And there is a line of research in the coping literature that looks at benefit finding, a positive reinterpretation coping. And in this literature, one way in which you cope with an adverse or traumatic event is to look for a silver lining. And the reason why you do that is that thinking about the upside of what you're being through can help lessen the impact of the trauma, right? It can less, help lessen the psychological impact of the trauma and also help you gain some degree of control over the event. So I think what's happened is that many researchers have just taken the assessments that are pretty much identical to measures used in the coping literature and assumed that those same measures assess post-traumatic growth. So the evidence was really based on, on methods that weren't up to the task because they are mixing the sort of lay theories about what could happen with as a result of change with the actual change. We can't tease these two apart. Exactly. And, you know, I, I, I should mention one thing, which is that I think people's narratives of change are important, right? So people's lived experience, how they make sense of adversity. I think those are, that, that's, it's very important to understand how people make sense of adversity and trauma. But I'll say two things. One is that it's important to distinguish those narratives and the stories of change from actual change that was caused from by the, by the trauma. So I think it's important to keep those distinct. And second, even as a measure of perceived growth or perceived change, these measures suffer from methodological problems. So a lot of the measures that I use are positively skewed. So when mm -hmm. you're asked to respond how much you've changed, the Likert scales go from no growth to a lot of growth, right? So this is an assumption built into the measure that you experience some degree of growth. So that leads to all types of demand characteristic issues, right? You can imagine someone looking at the scale and saying, oh, I guess the default is that I'm supposed to change to some degree. Right. So someone could report maybe three or four on a seven point scale, not necessarily because of change, but because they believe, OK, I have to give some type of response. Right. I'm, I'm just going to give an average response to these responses. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So the second point I'll make is even as a measure of perceived change, these measures have kept, are found wanting in many cases. Yeah. Just to follow up on that, I was going to raise the point as well that while the measures are retrospective and they come with the, the issues that Aranda has already outlined, the framing of the questions has also recently been discussed um, by researchers, particularly Adriel Bowles and his team that have done some really nice, elegant work looking at when you change the framing of the questions. So initially they are phrased very positively, like uh, my relationships became closer and, and you know more intimate. And if you change those to just my relationships have changed and then you give people the option to say, They've changed really negatively to not, you know, to a middle point of not at all to they've really changed positively. You, you see significantly less post-traumatic growth being reported just from a neutral framing of those items and a different response scale. Um, so even though theoretically people have the option to read those items and say, no, none of this applies to me. You know, I'm a zero across the board. They don't, you know, the, the demand characteristics there or for other reasons, participants don't. They tend to perhaps report, you know, some change. Perhaps they think researchers are looking for it. Perhaps it just feels more comforting to fill it out in the moment in that way. But they do, yeah, those reports do change depending on how you frame the questions and mm -hmm. how they respond. So 
again, it, it does call for, for more work to separate out perceptions from, from longitudinal change. This resonates with a discussion we had a couple of episodes back with Ian Deary when we compared mm-hmm. the sort of progress that perhaps personality research field and intelligence research fields have made. And I tried to push the argument there that intelligence research has you know, empirically a little bit advanced, perhaps a little bit more. And, and one of the reasons I think we discussed was that in personality research is complicated by, by, by these Lee theories that researchers have mm-hmm. sort of interfering with the subject matter itself, which I think is exactly what you were also discussing. What did you expect in the light of other research on personality change? I mean, it's a very popular topic at the moment, and a lot of people are studying trade change in reaction to life events, and mostly they're positive events, sometimes negative as well. But but I think they typically expect something quite opposite to what you are expecting. They are expecting that when there is a negative event, like a death or somebody, or becoming unemployed, it entails negative trade change. How would you interpret that in light of post-traumatic growth? That's a very good question. So when I got interested in post-traumatic growth, maybe 10, 12 years ago, you know, I think because so much of my understanding of literature was driven both by these claims made by post-traumatic growth theorists, maybe intuitions I had about the possibility of post-traumatic growth, you know, my own experience growing up in Sri Lanka, right, which has undergone a fair amount of like ethnopolitical strife and seeing how at least the very many people somehow were able to remain resilient and function to some degree, right? I think my my initial starting point was, oh, you know, there's clearly something here because a lot of people are doing research about it. A lot of people are talking about it, right? And then I think as I learned more about the methodological limitations of post-traumatic growth research, as I learned more about like uh, the possibilities for, for change in one's personality, I think my, my, my perspective shifted maybe not so much to say that, oh, post-traumatic growth is highly unlikely, but to a point where post-traumatic growth clearly is a phenomenon that if it occurs, it's not particularly ubiquitous, right? And definitely not as ubiquitous as the post-traumatic growth researchers would claim. I don't doubt that some people do change. I also don't think we've done the type of research and done the type of analysis to identify who these people are who change in meaningful ways. There is some, again, not the type of evidence that we would say provides definitive definitive evidence, but you know there is research suggesting that people who have high levels of life, lifetime adversity tend to be more compassionate, tend to have a more pro-social attitude towards other people. Right, so this is research by Daniel Lim and David Steno. Right, they have a few papers that have come out in the last few years suggesting right that there's this, at least this relationship. Now we don't know whether it's causal, we don't know whether there are other factors that predict it. But I think one interesting question would be to try and identify what are the personality outcomes we should focus on, right? So, you know, just a few seconds ago, I was talking about compassion and pro-social behavior. Compassion is not a dimension of post-traumatic growth that's frequently studied by post-traumatic growth researchers. And, And it's interesting because if you read what philosophers or, you know, religious thinkers, like Buddhism, for example, right, talks a lot about the development of compassion right, in response to understand that life is suffering, right? Once you understand that, you start having more compassion towards other people. So given that, it's interesting that we may not be studying the right personal dimensions where we would expect change. So I wonder whether, you know, one thing that's happened in the post-traumatic literature is that a lot of the dimensions that are studied are very much, you know, eudaimonic well-being or meaning and purpose type dimensions, which 
correspond to meaning making in the wake of adversity, right? So this might be another example where because of the confounding of research and meaning making and coping with research and personality change, we might end, we might have spent too much time looking at the wrong outcomes. So I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done trying to figure out what the key outcomes we would expect change to occur are, and then think, okay, what proportion of people ex- experiences changes and which individual differences predict that change? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also some of the original, like if we go back to some of the original post-traumatic growth research, which was clinical in nature, the, like we said before, I think much of that, even though they weren't using those those theories and those terms, it, it fits probably most neatly into that idea of narrative identity um, that we're seeing now in the personality literature, because it was very much about, you know, this event has an impact on you. you, you reflect on the event, you think about the significance and meaning of that event, and in light of that, you restructure your life story and how you're, you're moving forward. So when I started to look into the kind of personality change literature on traits, it obviously, like you said, it's sort of contradictory in a way because you look and they're mostly negative changes and and they make sense when you think about them on average you're like oh this event happened neuroticism went on went up on average for people that makes sense negative emotions agreeableness perhaps it went down because people were trying to cope with the event caring responsibilities you know if it was like a terminally ill spouse so I think we also as researchers need to think and I think we'll probably get to this in the discussion a little bit dynamically about what we think personality change is in this concept, especially if it's not going to be ubiquitous and everyone experiences it. Are we expecting sort of a life story narrative identity change? Are we expecting in traits? Is it about like Aranda was said, isolating just the right traits like compassion? Or is it a bit more personal than that? Is it that, you know, a particular individual might take a particular interpretation to that event and therefore decide I need to be more open to experience or maybe less agreeable, I don't know, you know, than they were before. And so it might be more kind of nuanced facet level change. But I do think it's, yeah, it's probably not, I think what the special issue is showing is not as simple as just looking at, you know, personality traits, but thinking a bit more about what we mean about personality and the level that we study it in and how we study it. Let's talk about the special issue and some of the specific things that you learned from, or the reader will actually learn from the special issue. So what are the most important findings? I I presume a lot of papers did actually approach the topic of post-traumatic growth from the personality science perspective and using the kinds of constructs that personality scientists are interested in. So this will answer many of the shortcomings that you guys outlined in the previous literature. So what was found? One of the big messages to come from the special issue was that we had um, considerable diversity in the populations that were studied. So we had people who'd had recent sort of stressful major life stressors who didn't necessarily, you know, from a defined population. We had people who had sort of more daily interpersonal stressors in their romantic relationships. We had resettled refugees um, in the Netherlands from Syria. So we had a huge diversity of populations and also a lot of diversity in the constructs that were measured. You know, people were looking at compassion, spirituality, empathy. I think those ones were more shared, openness to experience. But yeah, what we actually observed was a lot of stability after at least 
most studies focused on 12 months. I think one study by Frankenthaler looked at two years, but there was, for most cases, in response to a lot of different adversities, responses in the people that we were surveying were very stable over time. There were a few declines, but for the most part, perhaps not what we were expecting, but in terms of post-traumatic growth, but there was stability rather than positive um, personality growth. So that was one kind of key message that came through out of lots of the papers that were submitted from these very different populations and different different traits. Do you want to add something? So just to follow up on what Laura said, one thing that, that I'm particularly proud about this special issue is that, you know, you have multiple researchers using different samples, using different research questions, really critically evaluating this question of what post-traumatic growth is. In many ways, the special issue builds on the target article on post-traumatic growth that Laura and I published in EJP in 2014. And one reason why I'm especially grateful to EJP and the European Association of Personality Psychology is to, was that they were able to give these authors and ask the opportunity to sort of showcase, okay, this is what a personalized science of post-traumatic growth would look like, right? We would critically evaluate this phenomenon, highlight the fact that if you understand post-traumatic growth the way it's been typically studied, well, there isn't too much evidence for that. So now we need to move on to different ways of thinking about how people change from different types of events, what those outcomes of where, where you might experience change would be, and how do we design studies so that we can examine whether people experience change in the short term or over time. You know, I would like to think that these sort of articles provide the foundation for a more mature understanding, right, of how we go about examining positive changes for adversity and trauma. In many ways, actually, you approach the topic of personality change from this post-traumatic growth perspective, whereas a lot of other researchers have approached the topic of personality change from a different, I guess, more from a sort of traditional personality science perspective, but I do see that the, the evidence seems to be pointing in the same direction in both ways. And, and, and the narrative, big narrative here is that intuitively we expect these ubiquitous changes to happen either positive uh, for some researchers uh, or negative from the post-traumatic growth perspective. But actually the empirical evidence is much more modest, at least when it comes to the average changes across individuals as a, res- as a response to uh, certain events, positive or negative. So there must be something more nuanced going on, either in terms of what specific constructs are reacting or whether there are probably quite large individual differences, how people react to uh, specific uh, events. And now we have to understand what exactly or how mm-hmm. to make sense of these individual differences and the specific constructs. Is that a fair assessment? No, I think that's very fair. And I think, you know, there are a lot of really interesting research questions that fall out from acknowledging that, right? So for example, the fact that because post-traumatic research was conducted mostly by clinical psychologists, it was assumed that the main characteristic of a life event that would provoke change was its traumatic aspect, right? The extent to which the event was traumatic. And in part because of research that personality psychologists have done over the last few years, it's clear that we need to think more expansively about the, what, about the characteristics that might promote change, right? So, you know, the work that um, 
Michael Lerman and her colleagues have, have done on perceived characteristics of life events, right? The fact that she distinguishes between multiple types of characteristics, you know, that gives us a taxonomy to start thinking about, okay, what are the characteristics that are most likely to lead to change, right? Or what, what combination for what types of people are most likely to lead to change? So I do think that there are a number of really interesting questions that fall out from this recognition that there seems to be a disconnect between our intuitions about how life events impact us and what the evidence seems to suggest on average for people. Yeah, and I think what's really nice about the work that Aranda just mentioned by Michael Lumen is that it also brings a kind of synergy to the field because then it's not just about, you know, traumatic experiences or adverse experiences. It's just about life experiences and how people react to those. So for some people, a particular life event might be, you know, might be really, really joyous and happy. And then for other individuals, either anticipated or not, it's it's more challenging and it's more difficult. So I think looking at those event characteristics and the individual differences in that really does probably, you know, where these two camps were clinical and personality might help to actually bring bring the research together on that, which is which would be a really nice, you know, outcome. Yeah, I think it's a really nice positive way to look at this, look at the, the pattern of findings that otherwise we feel like it's quite upsetting because, you know, we didn't really find what we were expecting and then we didn't find again what we were expecting. It seems like, oh, what, what we shall we do now? But hey, this is actually a positive way to look at this. Mm-hmm. But were there any papers in the special issue that in particular were interesting, surprising, or at a personal level, perhaps for you? So I just mentioned one paper that I, I thought was particularly impressive in my mind. So Frank and Ferner had this, you know, a pretty simple longitudinal study, two-year study, uh, looking at change on a wide array of traits. And one thing that I think was interesting was that he looked at traits beyond the typical meaning purpose focused uh, dimensions of post-traumatic growth. And for the most part, he found stability. He had some interesting analysis showing like what proportion of people exhibited positive change, negative change. And, you know, one takeaway from the paper is that, you know, post-traumatic growth to the extent to which it exists probably isn't as ubiquitous as you think it is. So it's a very straightforward, very straightforward paper, relatively simple design, but I think it is a very nice job of showcasing, right, the type of design you would need to have if you want to make claims about positive change in the wake of adversity. So that's one paper. It's an elegant, simple design, but I thought it, it made its point in a very clear way. So one paper for me, I mean, all of them, I think we were just incredibly lucky with the papers that were submitted to this special issue. You know, it was really a pleasure to work on them. They were all enjoyable. And I feel like we've learned something important from, from all of them. And to have, you know, and to have as, as many as we did in the special issue as well, was, it was, was nice to see that it's an issue that's of relevance to other researchers. But one paper I thought was, you know, was important for me personally as a researcher was led by Nick Westrate. And that was really, it was a theoretical paper. But I think the one thing this paper did really well was they really got into the weeds of what does it mean? You know, what what is personality? How can we study it? Using McAdams model with the three levels initially with traits and characteristic adaption versus narrative identity. But they really, that paper was really comprehensive and really broke down, you know, well, if we expect change in this context, what will it look like? What are the factors that might influence it? Which is no small undertaking and just to, you know, the intellectual work that went into that, I think is, you know, is very inspiring. Um, and I think it's going to help, it helps provide a framework for some of the findings that we saw across these different papers and will really help researchers interested in post-traumatic growth and personality change more broadly think about 
how do we study this and, and what level should we be looking at and really kind of integrate some of that work so that for me was was a really exciting paper theoretically to come from to come from the special issue so i had the opportunity to work on that paper with cornelia frues and one thing that i really enjoyed about working with nick and cornelia on that paper is that it opens up a lot of really interesting questions for personal researchers i think one way in which personal psychologists can be excited about research and post-traumatic growth is that it raises some really interesting questions for personality dynamics, for understanding how change can occur at different levels of personality. And I think there's some really interesting fundamental questions, right? So for example, if dynamic accounts like Cornelia's Tessera framework or the framework that I've worked on with Will Fleeson, whole trade theory, you know, to the extent to which they're true, then you should expect changes caused by life events to lead to changes in your daily behavior, which over time should then lead to changes in the mechanisms underlying your underlying your traits. So that provides a, a nice framework for understanding the possibility of what I call uh, positive change or change more broadly in the wake of adversity, right? Is that what happens? And, and if not, what does that mean for understanding post-traumatic growth? What does it mean for the specific personality theory. Another interesting question that I think we mentioned in the paper is the relationship between the different levels of personality, right? So McAdams argues that these different levels are supposed to be independent of each other. But one thing, question that came up in our discussions is that, well, if someone changes in their characteristic adaptations, you should see that manifest in their dispositional behavior, right? In other words, it sh there should be a link between the people's goals and their traits. And, and this is a link that's explicitly pointed out in Cornelia's perspective, in my perspective, and other personality perspectives, like calling the Young's theory of personality, right? So they, there is this link posited between characteristic adaptations and traits. Similarly, if you experience growth or change at the narrative level, but that doesn't correspond to changes at other levels, what does that mean for the status of that change, right? Is there something qualitatively different between the type of change where you see evidence for change at all three levels of personality versus change where you see change at a narrative level, but the change at the trait level or the characteristic adaptations level is less clear? So I think, you know, Research at post-traumatic growth can afford a discussion of these really, I think, really interesting, maybe hitherto unanswered questions. Am I, am I right that one of the key future avenues that you see for post-traumatic growth research is, is actually trying to figure out at which level of personality description we should be studying it most fruitfully? Is these narratives at the sort of lowest or highest level I don't know which way we look at this, and then characteristic adaptations, and then the basic dispositions or traits. And that seems to be the key thing you you keep coming back to. Is that that so? Yeah, I mean that's definitely a key question for me uh, moving forward in my research. And I've had interactions with people who are familiar and study post traumatic growth as researchers outside of personality psychology, and this approach doesn't resonate with them. You know, because they they see personality just as personality traits, and they're like, well, traits are stable. You know, mm -hmm. this is I don't know, I, this is wrong. I'm not kind of sure. <laughs> you know, why you're defining post traumatic growth as personality change if you know we expect traits to be stable. So I think um, for me, it's you know there is a lot more work there to thinking. Well, it's not you know personality is more than personality traits, and I think we've done. There's been a lot of great work there. In the last you know last few years particularly and so I think that this for me thinking about how we move it forward is important because it also then incorporates some of the initial research that was done by clinical researchers which while might have had its methodological flaws it was actually a phenomenon they were 
seeing in their patients and it allows us to perhaps bring in that rigorous methodology and, and test it um, and, and add nuances to that in a way that I think is, you know, inclusive and, and respectful, but also acknowledges the, 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 new, the nuances and the complexity of studying a topic such as post-traumatic growth. And just to add maybe one more idea to it, I think that in addition to the question of for whom post-traumatic growth is most likely to occur, I think there's also the question of the timeline, right? And not only just this question of, you know, when when you start seeing evidence of post-traumatic growth, is it in the immediate aftermath? Is it two or three years down the line? So a lot of like theoretical accounts talk about how post-traumatic growth should only show up after pe- the person's had time to process the event, right? And that could be true for certain characteristics, right? It could be true for one's narrative identity. It could be true for certain certain personality outcomes. But it's also possible that, you know, you see evidence for sudden gains in, in cognitive therapy. For some people, you might see immediate change, right? And I think it's important to be open to the possibility that to the extent to which people can change positively find adversity and trauma, some people might need time to process the event to change. Whereas for other people, you know, the event is like the perf- like a kickstart where they immediately change their behavior and then you see the shift pretty soon after the event. So, and relatedly, there's also this question of how long you should expect the change to last before you start talking about it as change or growth, right? So, you know, in the West Trade paper, we, we cite Brent Roberts' distinction between sort of pliable change and elastic change, right? And I do think that even if most change you see in the wake of adversity is elastic change, where you see a short-term shift and over time you see a return to people's pre-existing trait levels, I still think it's an interesting phenomenon to study. I mean, one interesting thing is that we, we actually don't know, right, for the people who actually experience change, whether that change is long-term or short-term. So I think that's another interesting research question uh, that, you know, I, that I hope we and others will be able to address. That's very interesting, especially I like the idea of, you know, putting the individual back back in the picture because after all we are personality researchers and mm-hmm. personality is about how people differ and people also differ in how they react to things and, and actually exactly. to consider these things. What other research topics are you interested in besides post-traumatic growth personally? Well I'm interested like more broadly in personality and personality dynamics you know for the last 10 years or so, I've been collaborating with Will Fleeson on whole trait theory and on questions of, you know, the extent to which people vary in their personality from moment to moment, from context to context, what predicts that variability, how we can, to what extent can we harness that variability for personality development and personality change. So I'm interested in, you know, personality dynamics more broadly. I've also been working on understanding moral personality. So, you know, for again, for the last decade or so, I've been interested in looking at moral traits or character traits. Again, I'm trying to understand variability in people's moral behavior, the extent to which it's systematic. So to what extent is it driven by people's goals, by situational contingencies, and, you know, developing better measure of moral traits. I've also done work on well-being. So I'm interested in distinguishing between different conceptualization of well-being, come up with better assessments. And in part because of my interest in post-traumatic growth, I have done some work with Laura, with other colleagues like Igor Grossman, looking at wisdom. Right. So what are the characteristics of wisdom? How do we measure them? How do they systematically vary across context? Um, so I, I guess yeah, that, that would sort of capture the main areas of research that I'm interested in. Yes, it seems that you're sort of going around and tidying up these different research areas and the concepts and measurements. And, and it's the same story here, right? Yeah, picking away at them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> nice. That's well, true. There's a certain amount of synergy to the multiple interests that, um, <laughs> that you hold, Aranda. So I came to 
post-traumatic growth through an interest in how people respond to reminders of their own mortality and particularly looking at whether those reminders for healthy individuals could be kind of positive and well-being responses rather than the typical knee-jerk kind of defensive responses. So I guess my research interests are quite, um, you know, perhaps more defined in that area of meaning making and looking at how individuals kind of respond to different events. But it's not just necessarily adversity that I am interested in. I am interested more in these kind of cultural perceptions as well of how people respond to different life events. So recently I've become quite interested in looking at whether there are certain cultural scripts um, that individuals have, which allow us to form, I guess, expectations or and how and how we anticipate an event's going to um, impact us and whether that has any bearing on how we respond to that. Um, so I've been initially doing some kind of more experimental social psychology research into that to see are there cultural differences? Are there scripts for different types of events? And if there are scripts, does that influence how we think how well an individual has coped for that? But more long-term, I'd like to kind of bring that in to look at how those scripts and you know, expect social norms and expectations might play into individuals' responses to different types of events. So for me, it's kind of broad, it's all the interest is in kind of existential psychology and how people make meaning of salient events and how that impacts their own you know, their identity. Well, all this fits very nicely with the post-traumatic growth topic. Thank you both very much. It was really nice talking to you. And I am very sure this podcast episode will be interesting to many of our listeners. And I am very sure many of them will head over to uh, the journal website and, and start looking for the articles uh, from your special issue. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting us to contribute. Thank you so much for having us, Minnie.